So have you ever heard something that you never thought you would ever hear in a million years? I mean, you never, ever, ever thought you'd hear it. About a year ago, uh, maybe the most shocking decisions that's ever been made in the history of Western civilization, maybe even the world, was made about this time last year. That's right. Twitter increased the number of characters you could use. Yeah, it's a big deal. Big thing for most of you, you know, like me, that you know all the Twitters, so you know all about this stuff. And boy, this has just really changed your life that Twitter increased all of their characters. Now, how has the universe changed since people have 140 more letters, numbers, symbols, and emojis that they can tweet? How has the world changed? Well, Twitter has been paying attention. They're watching these things, and a report out recently says that with these new characters, it seems as if the universe has become more polite. The words of the report go like this, 54% more messages say please, and 22% more use thank you since the character limit doubled. Please and thank you has increased, at least on social media. Another part of the report goes like this. There's a decline of abbreviations like GR8, B4, and SRY in favor of the full words. Great, before, and sorry. Look, Mom, I'm using my words, the whole words. This is the culture of the tweeting. Now, here's the thing, though. More politeness is much better than some of the things that normally happen on Twitter, which are known as Twitter battles. This is when someone goes on and in 280 characters or less, they make some statement about some hot button issue that's happening in the world. And then someone else responds to their statement and then the two of them go back and forth and back and forth for the whole Twitter world to see. Publisher, professor, and pastor Trevin Wax describes it this way. The followers from both tribes act like fans in the stands, cheering on their hero either by praising them or by bashing their opponents. Everyone gets properly outraged, and the conversation ends wearily. Is a Twitter battle really the best and most thoughtful way, especially for Christians, the best and most thoughtful and most prayerful way for us to share our thoughts on serious ideas? Trevin goes on to note several reasons that Twitter battles are not best, and one of the reasons he gives is that they dehumanize people. This is what he writes. This is one place where social media and technology let us down or where we simply aren't up to the task. We don't really know the people we are bantering with. He goes on. It is all too easy to place people in camps, read into their every tweet the worst assumptions, and then create an ideologue of our own imagination rather than a real person. I am not an avatar, he says. Neither is my opponent. I don't want to assume the worst of people I debate, and Twitter makes that hard for me. There's a great deal of truth in that. We we are real people. We are not avatars. And real people need real communication. And real communication involves real words, not abbreviations. And there's three real words that have the ability, in a sense, to change the world. And those three words are please, And thank you. See, those three words are very different because what they do is they invite you into a conversation instead of forcing you into a conversation. 
please and thank you are the kind of words that help you see that this is something that you don't have to do, but you get to do. There is one thing that all of us face really on a weekly basis, and it's something that if we're honest, we we feel like we have to do it. And if we're really, really honest, we don't want to do it. But the reality is this is one of those things that if we see it rightly, we get to do it. So what is that one thing? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to help us see that. He's going to use some polite words to help us see it as well. So we look now at Paul's letter to his friend Philemon, beginning with verse 12. Paul writes, I have sent him back to you in person. Well, who is Paul sent back in person? Well, he sent back a guy named Onesimus. And who is Onesimus? Well, he's a runaway slave. And who did he run away from? Well, he ran away from Philemon. Don't miss the math here. You have this slave, this servant from Philemon's house who ran away. Paul is sending him back to Philemon. So here's someone who did him wrong. He broke his trust. He cost him money. He stole from him. That's what we know of the story. But Paul sends him back. What kind of music is he going to face when he gets back? Well, according to customs and the laws of the land at the time, he might be beaten and forced back into slavery. He might be branded like a cattle with with the letter F for fugitive on his forehead. Or he might be immediately executed for his rebellious escape. None of the music was something that he would want to face when he got back. So with that kind of danger, why would he go back? And why would Paul send him back? And, And what does Paul have to do with any of this to begin with? Well, Paul and Philemon are friends because Paul led Philemon to Jesus. And so Philemon has a relationship with Paul. And then you have Onesimus, who was some kind of slave, some kind of servant in the house of Philemon. And Onesimus ran away more than a thousand miles to Rome. And he thought, man, I can get away and and go start my life over somewhere where nobody would know me. And somehow among the 800,000 estimated people that live in Rome at the time, he meets Paul, the the same Paul that led Philemon to the Lord. Somehow by the unique and crazy grace of God in the middle of 800,000 people, Onesimus met Paul. And just like Philemon, he heard the gospel from Paul. And he got saved. He was captured by the love and the grace and the mercy and the salvation of Jesus His life changed. Listen, if you've ever wondered if God cares for people like me and people like you, all you have to do is look at Onesimus. He was running as far away as he could, and still the grace of God found him. But it didn't just find him, right? I mean, there's no rational explanation for the geography and the statistics of this moment. The ability for Onesimus to become a Christian is beyond explanation. The only way something like this could happen, if you look at all of the information that's gathered, is that the one true God was pursuing him from the front door at Philemon's house to the front gate at Paul's prison cell. C.S. Lewis made some interesting comments about how he became a Christian. He said this, I had a notion that somehow besides questing, I was being pursued 
He goes on. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene, the, the university where he was. That room at Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Does that feel like maybe a little bit of your story? Or maybe is that your story today? Are you an agnostic or an atheist and and you have no desire to meet God? But maybe there's a hint that you know he's pursuing you and you're reluctant. You're pushing away. You you don't have anything to do with him. Please know that based on the very character of God, he cares for you. How do we know that? Well, he cares for you and so deeply prizes you that he would give his own son, he sent his own son to substitute and sacrifice himself for you so that sin would no longer grip your soul, so that sin would be removed and the curse of sin would be removed and the wrath of God that is to come would have no sway over you. That's how much he cares. That's how much he deeply prizes and deeply loves So don't be reluctant. God cares for you. Or maybe you're a believer and you're reluctant because you don't like what God's calling you to do. (laughs) You're you're not interested. You're comfortable where you are and and what's happening. So you're, you're not really good with wanting to obey what God's calling you to right now. Don't ignore the purpose and the power and the presence of the cross in your life. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says this, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Big word, great word, fantastic word, amazing word. Put it in your, in your language of things that you say, propitiation, because what it means is that Jesus became your atoning, appeasing, absolving, repairing, redeeming sacrifice so that things would be right between you and God. That's what God does. Don't be reluctant because God cares for you. C.S. Lewis goes on. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? And then he says this, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. Here's what happened with Onesimus. He took off. He ran away, and he was hoping that he was going to get some liberation from his slavery. But even if he did, when he got to Rome, he realized he 
he wasn't free. He was away from Philemon's house. He was away from those rules, but his heart and his mind and his soul kept telling him he wasn't free. And he was confronted through Paul with the the hard and harsh reality that sin is real and there are real consequences for sin. And he was confronted with the hard and harsh reality that the wrath of God is real and it is right and it is just. Because if the wrath of God was not real and was not right and was not just, then there will never be justice for the evil in this world. I was listening to a sermon this week that was reflecting on an American missionary and a team of Americans that were in a certain area ministering, a closed place of a closed country, an area in a foreign land that had never heard the gospel. And one of the things they did as part of their time there was to, to show this, this video. And, and the video was seemingly very poorly made. It was some kind of Christian movie, and, and somewhere in the movie there was some kind of depiction of the wrath of God and of hell. And for the Americans on the group, they kind of cringed because they just didn't like They were kind of embarrassed about this part. It, it seems that they were embarrassed because they were thinking, man, we don't need this. It's not even well done. We just need to talk about the love of Jesus. But the people who had never heard the gospel, the part about the wrath of God and hell, that was the part they were most interested in. Because see, they had lived a life maybe for generations of some type of abuse and pain. And for them, the notion that there was a God who cared enough to create and own and establish and promise wrath and accountability for evil, that encouraged their heart because they thought that there was never going to be justice for what happened to them. They found hope in the harsh. They found hope in the hard. And so did Onesimus. Onesimus, he he found hope in the heart. He found hope in the fact that the compulsion of God pursued him. And it was only by the pursuit of God that he actually became free. Truly free. Onesimus met Paul. Paul shared the gospel. Onesimus got saved. Paul finds out the story about Philemon and he goes, dude, you got to go back. Now, yeah, you, you got to go make this right. Now, how badly did Paul really want to send him back? Listen to what he writes next. I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul didn't want him to go. <laughs> and they, they had formed a friendship. Onesimus had become useful to him. He was like this fantastic intern for his ministry. And and Paul was in prison, so he needed all the help he could get. He didn't long to send him away. They, They were now friends. And don't forget this picture either. Paul now has a ministry partnership with a runaway slave. He was an outlaw. He was an outcast in that day. And yet Paul has a relationship with him. He would not have been invited over for Thanksgiving dinner. And yet Paul sends him home for the holidays to Philemon, of all places. Why does that matter? Why why does it matter to this story? But maybe more importantly, why does that matter to you? 
J. Vernon McGee said this, when I was a young preacher, I thought that the grace of God had to go way down to reach the bad sinners, but didn't have to go down so far to reach others who weren't so bad. He goes on, but now I know that God's grace has to go all the way to the bottom to get all of us. Each one of us is completely lost outside of Christ. And then he says this, Either you are absolutely saved in Christ or you are completely lost outside of Christ. All of us need the righteousness of Christ. There is no difference. When it comes to being saved, everybody starts from the same level. Everybody has the same starting point. This is what Paul told the folks at Galatia. Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If there is ever any place on the planet where race and social status and gender and all the other divisions of life should be put on the back burner, it is in the church of the Most High God. It's who He is. It's His family. And why is that true? Because of Jesus. Paul told the Romans this, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I just found something that I have in common with an African-American man and an Asian woman and an illegal immigrant, a militant atheist, a foreign terrorist, a domestic terrorist. I just found something I have in common with all of them and many more. All of us fall short of the glory of God. But that's not all. Paul said this to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So everyone falls short of the glory of God, and everyone is dead in their sins great news. So glad I came to church today. This is fantastic. Please continue. I will. (laughs) Because there's great news next. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, when we were short of His glory, when we were dead in our sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So I was like every other human being in the world, past, present, and future, dead in my sin, short of the glory of God, and God made me alive. I didn't make myself alive. I didn't bring my soul to life on my own. God brought my dead soul to life, and I was saved. See, that's why the cross matters so much. There is no race. There is no gender. There is no social status. There is no division at the foot of the cross. We are all dead people in need of life. We are all short of God's glory in need of being brought together with Him. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God because believers are all one in Christ. Paul was an imprisoned missionary. Philemon was a wealthy businessman. 
Onesimus was a runaway slave, but they were all one in Christ. Now, does that completely remove all the other titles in their life? No. No, it just, it almost brings emphasis to them because it meant that Paul was a Christian prisoner and Philemon was a Christian businessman and Onesimus was a, a Christian slave. See, we look at things like this and the differences and we begin to go, oh, well, that's the definition. No, the definition is Christ. See, we use things like race and social status, denomination, and, and music styles and clothing styles and whatever else you want to put in there, and we begin to say, well, this is our identity. But that's the opposite of the gospel. Our difference, it should never create a dividing wall. It actually shows the beauty of who Jesus is because it shows Christ in us. It means, as we sang earlier, that my identity is in my God and my Savior and my salvation. And whatever else my is in that list, none of it trumps my identity in Jesus. Where do I get that idea from? From Jesus. One day Jesus was at a well. He asked a woman who was drawing water at that well if she could give him a drink. And this was her response. John chapter 4 verse 9. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? It's a great scene. Mister, we're from different backgrounds. We, we are from different sides of the track. We're from different religions. We're from different families. We probably vote for different people. We probably cheer for different teams. And, and I'm a woman and you're a man. Mister, you should not even be talking to me. And yet Jesus was talking to her. I love what Philip Ryken says. She was a poor Samaritan woman. So Jesus was separated from her ethnically, socially, and sexually. But that did not stop him from loving her and dying for her sense. See, we get the, the beauty and the majesty of our identity in Christ, in Christ himself. He becomes the definition of, of who we are because he did not look at any of us and look at the mise of our life and say, mm, nah, I'm, I'm not going to die for Tao because of this. Now, Jesus saw all of our mise. And he still was our propitiation. He still was our atoning sacrifice. He still, for the glory of God and the love of your soul, gave himself for us. Onesimus found that out. And so Paul's sending him back because he knows it's the right thing to do. He's a Christian. Got to make those relationships right the best he can. But, but then something else is happening in this letter. It's not just that he's sending Onesimus back to Philemon. He's asking Philemon to do something. He's asking Philemon to forgive. That, that was against everything in culture, everything in society. But he's asking. But, but that, that's all he's doing is asking. He, he really doesn't come as Pope Paul. This is a declaration and decree because I led you to Jesus. You must do what I say. No, that's not what happens. Listen to verse 14. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything. I love this. Paul's just being polite. 
being gracious, a little please and thank you here in the conversation. Paul's not starting a Twitter battle with Philemon. He is not expecting and thinking of the worst of Philemon. No, he's, he's assuming the best of Philemon. And what's the best? Listen, verse 14. So that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but out of your own free will. See, that's, that's the best right there. See, why should Philemon even think about forgiving Onesimus? And why would he be compelled to do it? Well, he should not forgive because he has to. He should forgive because he gets to. What does that mean? Why does he get to? Well, do the math. It's, it's really easy. He should forgive because he is no longer short of the glory of God. He should forgive because he's no longer dead in his sins. He should forgive because the sin that had gripped his life has now been removed. The curse of sin no longer held sway over him. In other words, he should forgive because he had been forgiven. The best in Philemon was Christ. That was the best inside of him. But here's the thing. The new best in Onesimus was Christ. Forgiveness should happen, especially for believers, because we have been forgiven. Scotty Smith wrote a fantastic prayer based on Philemon, and I'm going to read just a few portions of it. But before I do, I just want to ask, because I want you to listen to these words as if it's kind of your prayer. But as we head into this Thanksgiving week, is there anybody you need to forgive? Or maybe it's not even this week. Maybe, maybe it's today. Is there anybody you need to forgive? This is what Scotty wrote. Jesus, I'm a lot like Onesimus. I'm a rebel. I'm a runner. I want freedom on my terms. I thank you for not giving up on me, for coming after me when I was running away from you as fast as I could, just like Onesimus ran from Philemon. You came after me. You found me. You bound me to your heart through the cords of the gospel, and slowly but surely, you're changing me. Then he switches characters. Jesus, I also know what it's like to be Philemon. I've been failed and I've been hurt. I've been betrayed and suffered loss. I've been used and played for a fool. Anybody been there this week? He goes on. But forgive me for labeling anyone as useless. There is simply no such thing as a worthless, useless image bearer of God. Help me forgive those who have harmed me intentionally or otherwise. May your beauty trump my bitterness. Your redemption rout my resentment. And he changes characters one more time. Jesus, I want to love like Paul. Paul saw something in Onesimus that Philemon didn't see. Jesus, you saw something in me that no one else saw. 
Please give me your gospel eyes to see what you see in others, especially in people who disappoint me or bail on me. And then he asked some questions. Who have I branded useless with either my actual words or unspoken words? Who have I written off? Who have I renamed failure, worthless? You'll never amount to anything. You're you're never to be trusted again. Whose failure stories do I love to retell as a way of paying them back? Have mercy on me, Lord. And then he says this. Many times in certain people, I simply do not want to love with gospel love. Forgive me and free me, for none of us is beyond the need of your grace, and none of us is beyond the reach of your grace. And then he closes with these simple words. Jesus, give me a much bigger heart. So very amen, I pray, in your chain-breaking slave freeing name. May the Lord have mercy on us and may he give us a desire to forgive because we have been forgiven.